Hi, I'm Jada Siri Ramos. I'm one of the producers on Human Powered. It's a podcast from Wisconsin Humanities, and you're about to hear one of my favorite episodes from season one. For this episode, we traveled way up north to the Red Cliff Reservation on the shores of Lake Superior. The episode is called The Power of Indigenous Knowledge, and without further ado, here is season one host, Jimmy Gutierrez. This story starts around a fire. A fire started by Alex Bresloff. My goal is always to use as much of the material around the environment as possible. You know, I could have brought a bunch of... Alex is the Indigenous Arts and Science Coordinator in Red Cliff, Wisconsin. It is way up north in Wisconsin on Lake Superior. And right now, he is making us lunch inside of a cedar log. First, we're going to do Menomen and uh, the bulbs of the Jigaga one, the leeks. Monomen is the Ojibwe word for wild rice. We're going to add some other wild greens that I gather right around here. Um, and uh, we're going to add fish. Alex has two fresh caught, like that day fresh, pieces of trout straight from Lake Superior. He's glazed them with maple sugar. And he's cooking it all up with rocks that he's been heating up in the fire. Yes, rocks are stacked in the center. They're about fist, uh, size of a fist or smaller because they need to fit in the bowl, uh, the carved out cedar gizik bowl. Um, and the fire is built around them and it basically heats them up until, and if it was dark, they might be even glowing red right now because this fire has been going for about an hour. Uh, so it gets them nice and hot. And Alex pours some water into the bowl and then very carefully adds the rocks from the fire. Grab the lid. Thirty minutes later, we eat. It's earthy and fresh. It's a little sweet and a lot wonderful. It's a cooking technique that's been used in this area for over five thousand years. This meal is knowledge coming together. The tribal histories of the residents here and the academic knowledge of two archaeologists. For the last three years, the Red Cliff Tribal Historic Preservation Office has been collaborating with Heather Walder and John Kreese, two archaeologists helping excavate sites on tribal lands. During these digs, students, researchers, and tribal community members work together to learn about the people who have lived on this land for millennia and to connect that knowledge with the people who still live here today which for so long hasn't been the case with archaeological work. They say, well, this is how they used to be. This is how they used to be. Look, you look at them. That's what they used to do. So that, that word they disconnects me. This disconnects everybody in our whole community, right? They, that's what they, so what I like to do is, well, yeah, this is how we came to be, right? This is how we came, came to be. We're here today, we're alive today, we ain't going nowhere, we're alive today, but there's a story on how we came to be. 
I'm Jimmy Gutierrez, and this is Human Powered, a podcast from Wisconsin Humanities and Love Wisconsin about how people make places better. Now, I'm from Milwaukee and the shores of Lake Michigan, but I recognize and appreciate all of the beauty that is Lake Superior. I myself cannot get enough of Bayfield County and the Apostle Islands, home to some of the most beautiful wild spaces in the state. It's also home to some of Wisconsin's more than 85,000 indigenous residents. That includes folks on reservations descended from people forced to resettle in designated spaces across the U.S. Tribal members in Red Cliff are from the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, and they also identify as Anishinaabe. Today, tribal leaders are working to reclaim and revitalize that deep history and culture of their people and are connecting with a new generation of scholars committed to centering indigenous knowledge. Redcliffe is one place where that's happening. And that's where we're starting today, with Marvin Defoe. We're sitting right here now on our, what we call our cultural grounds. It's about 38 acres. And what we're doing is how we could make this into a, a learning opportunity culturally uh, for the community. Marvin is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for Redcliffe, otherwise known as the TIPO. The TIPO office is in charge of a lot of things, things like the annual powwow, the language school, and making sure that none of the sacred sites get disturbed. So sometimes, Marvin gets calls from archaeologists, archaeologists like Heather Walder. I remember being in my, like, terrible apartment, um, calling Marvin just cold um, to speak with the TIPO um, to talk about this project. Heather works at UW-La Crosse and the Chicago Field Museum. Mostly I spent that hour just listening and kind of asking questions like, if you could do archaeology in Redcliffe, what would you be interested in looking at? You know, I had a hunch. You know, when, when Heather gave me a call in Redcliffe, do you know of any place in Redcliffe that maybe we could kind of take a look at whatever? And I started thinking. I said, yeah, we'd go out to Prague Bay. It was just a gut feeling. Being indigenous in Redcliffe, you have got to trust your gut. And that is because Marvin knows his history well. A history when it comes to these United States that's defined by removal and genocide. Throughout time, there's always been a policy or an initiative to kind of do away with the Indian, you know? Kind of do away with the, the land. Some of the formal U.S. policies start as far back as 1830. That's when President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which allowed the government to exchange land east of the Mississippi River, where Native Americans were living, for other land in the West. There was an executive order from the President of the United States to remove all indigenous people from the East Coast all the way to the, to the Mississippi River Telling all indigenous people, get the hell out, get off that land, get out. Over the next 20 years, thousands of indigenous people died because they were forced out of their homes. Most of us have heard this story as the Trail of Tears. But government policies aren't the only way that violence shapes history. Archaeologists, anthropologists, and other people with Western scientific training have also come into native spaces, dehumanizing people for study. Indian people has been studied to death, <laughs> you know. 
Just study after study after study after study. Because throughout my life, what happened to indigenous people throughout this land really wasn't a, a good perspective on what our people were categorized as, you know, uh, savages, red man, pagans, heathens. Disregard for Native lives is not the distant past. It's in Marvin's lifetime. It's still happening today. There are several documented cases of burial mounds being destroyed for development projects in the last 20 years. Throughout the United States, uh, archaeologists, if you will, or construction people, if you will, are digging graves up, digging bones up uh, with, with no regard, no regard to the, to the remains. And when you lose history, you open wounds. Marvin has a good friend whose grandparents were taken out of their graves, their artifacts taken to museums or stolen. He and Marvin drove past that spot sometimes. He'd almost start crying when he'd go by that place in the aisle. And how come you're, well, how come you're, when you go by there, you feel that way, whatever. Well, I remember my grandma and my grandpa's uh, vest and stuff were hung out on the clothesline. Right there, dug right out the ground. You know, dug right out the ground. And even now, museums like the Logan Museum of Archaeology in Beloit still have the remains of an indigenous woman and her child in their collection. And then I start to think, I wonder what I would do right now if my mother and my sister were sitting down there in the museum. What would you do? You'd, no, you'd want to put them to rest, right, ever. So there's story after story after story after story is what I'm saying. So all of a sudden we say, well, we got some archaeologists that want to come up to Redcliffe. You can't help but think about all that, you know. You can't, you can't help because that's the, you know, that's the history of it. Getting back to that phone call Marvin took with Heather, he had a gut feeling that something was out at Frog Bay. Heather started on some background research. She discovered through Beloit College that they had boxes of artifacts from Redcliffe from back in the 70s, right? And on that box was Frog Bay. Another one was the pageant grounds. Another one was, you know, that's what we found out. They said, Marvin, do you want, do you want, well, yeah, bring them in. So we brought them in. Heather connected with Nicolette Meister. She's the director of the Logan Museum and worked with Heather and John to safely transfer the artifacts back to the tribe. And I remember having nothing but like a rolled up mattress in my car and these artifacts. And I was leaving DeKalb for the last time. I drove straight up to Beloit, um, picked up the artifacts, and then was able to take them to UW Lacrosse to do a quick inventory, and then we returned the artifacts to Redcliffe uh, before a tribal council meeting. And that was when the tribal council members were really seeing these artifacts returning for the first time. We just shared it, shared it, some of these <clears throat> artifacts, which was like the copper, kind of passed it around and just, just by touching it. It's right here in Redcliffe, right here at 
frog made. Look at that, 5,000 years old right here. That's our footprint. So it just kind of overwhelmed everyone. Kind of realized, you know, <laughs> that uh, that there's, you know, to, to help tell our story. Holding these artifacts is more than history. It's a way to heal. Establishing trust with an archaeologist like Heather gave Marvin and the Tribal Council an opportunity to reclaim some of the knowledge of this place, to undo some of the historical trauma that's been done, and to imagine a new way to do archaeology. After that meeting, the Tribal Council approved Heather and John to dig. They would do it together with Marvin and the Tippo office, back in Frog Bay, where the artifacts came from. Hey, it's Jade. I'm a producer here on Human Powered. This podcast is made in collaboration with Love Wisconsin. Our mission is to use storytelling and social media to create a more connected, compassionate, and engaged Wisconsin. At Love Wisconsin, we believe stories can break down barriers between us and they can inspire us to get involved. We feature stories of everyday people from every corner of the state. From an 83-year-old man working on a sailboat for the last three decades, to a woman who went from living in a barbershop to getting a college degree and starting her own business. You can follow along and read our archive of more than 100 stories at lovewi.com. The website also features a story from Edwina Buffalo Reyes, who you'll meet after the break. We all share Wisconsin, so follow along with Love Wisconsin and let's get to know each other. Frog Bay Tribal National Park is a pretty wild space of land. Old growth forest that goes right down to the shores of Lake Superior. It faces northeast with amazing views of the Apostle Islands. This place itself is part of the historical trauma here. Several generations back, the land was owned by an elder, but it was taken away from her because she owed less than $3 in property taxes. They stole that land. They may have stole it legally. Oh yeah, you know... It'll hold up in court. We got the deed, but you coerced, coerced our elders into that, you know. After a series of owners who openly threatened tribal members. It wasn't too long ago. If we went down there, he'd come and he'd put a gun to your head. The land was acquired by a conservationist who was willing to sell the land back to the tribe under one condition. They conserve it. The whole thing was messy and complicated, so Marvin went ahead and created the first tribal national park in the country. I remember sitting there, well, what are we going to do? we got to have the conservancy and this and that. I said, well, just make a national park. What are we going to call it? I don't know. Frog Bay Tribal National Park. How's that? Hey, that sounds good. Okay, Frog Bay Tribal National Park. <laughs> like that, you know. And that took about 15 seconds to do it. The dig started at Frog Bay Tribal National Park in the summer of 2018. A whole crew was there. Heather, her collaborator John Kreese from the University of North Dakota, and some of their students. There was also a crew from Redcliffe. Heather and John knew that for this project to work, they had to overcome a legacy of archaeologists in this land. Here's John. 
as a non-native person, as a settler, um, you know, Euro-American person, um, you know, I feel a, a responsibility and as an archaeologist because of the history of our discipline kind of coming in and treating native people um, as either research subjects or worse, um, you know, I, I feel like it's our responsibility to kind of rectify and start to heal those those historical wounds. Well, uh, you know, we're very cautious, <laughs> you know, because I told you we're studied to death or you want to be careful on on that. <clears throat> you ever hear that song from Floyd, do you know Floyd Westerman? And the anthro still keep coming like death in taxes to our land to study their feathered freaks with funded money. Floyd Westerman was a singer. He's a native guy. I played that to the archaeologists when they were here. Uh, you know, here comes the anthro. It's kind of like studying the Indian, you know. Kind of a thing. Here come the anthro, and had you passed away. Here come the anthro on another holiday. And the anthros bring their friends to see the circus. But that's kind of, you know, how it took to really, I had to. have our council be comfortable, somehow be comfortable with the work that we're want to do and trying to do, and they had to understand it. Heather and John got the message. They set up the field school to engage and really listen to the community. Heather's experience includes projects where you dig as much, as fast as possible. But at Frog Bay, it was about slowing down and bringing folks out to the site. I need to flip a mental switch when I go to field school to say it's okay, we're going slow, today we've got kids, tomorrow we've got elders, and that's way more important than digging another 10 centimeters of dirt out of the ground. Asking tribal members for input is crucial as the group makes sense of what they find in the ground. So bringing in things like oral histories and oral traditions, bringing in uh, community members to get their perspectives on different artifacts or um, even going out to the site um, when community members or elders come out to the site and kind of um, hearing their thoughts on the use of space or how the place might have looked or maybe even envisioning uh, who might have lived there. It brings in storytelling. It brings in community knowledge and it brings in culture in a way that interpretive frameworks in Western science and archaeology don't always do. The history of, of the discipline, unfortunately, is one that has often marginalized Indigenous voices and not necessarily uh, considered contemporary community members to have a lot to offer to kind of the academic interpretive process. John Kreese again. Um, and I feel like we've discovered that that's just the opposite in reality. Indigenous knowledge is a resource that's always been overlooked and undervalued by Western science. But here in Redcliffe, it led to some big breakthroughs. For example, take the bunches and bunches of cracked rocks that were being found all over the site. Um, so these are rocks that basically uh, burst when they get heated. 
And they're evidence of people obviously heating them for some purpose. And, you know, we had various ideas about why, why are we finding these sort of piles of firecracked rocks? You know, is this like some kind of baking feature or something else? Heather and John had academic knowledge of these rocks, but they wondered if indigenous knowledge or technologies were better, more useful than what they knew. And Marvin had an idea. Heat them up, put them in a container. I call that a Shinabe microwave. Yeah, microwave oven, you know. You can make it out of cedar. Marvin's Anishinaabe microwave came from a story he heard from an indigenous elder in Canada. That elder took his grandkids out for the weekend to share traditions. And one morning, they caught a fish and started a fire. You know, so he took the fish, heated up them rocks, and had the drop, and he put that fish in there, and he put, uh, in the woods, they got some wild onions, put it in there, and he put a little wild rice in there, and uh, put them rocks in there, put the top on, wrapped it all up with that buckskin, tied it up, and propped it in the bow of his canoe. And off they went, and they went on their, went on their journey. A few hours later, they had a delicious lunch cooked with hot rocks inside of a cedar log. Top Chef has nothing on this. Heather, John, and Marvin wanted to share this technique. And they wanted to do it using the rocks found at the Frog Bay site. So we were literally cooking with stones from the same location uh, where people had probably been cooking with stones 5,000 years ago. And I feel like that really does... It, it connects the past to the present in a, in a very physical, visceral way. Today, Marvin shared that meal with us. The same meal an elder shared with his grandkids just a few years ago. A meal that was shared with the people at Frog Bay who lived here 5,000 years ago. When you walk back there, you certainly, you know, if, if, if you're in tune to those kinds of things, you can certainly feel, feel um, a presence, um, a heartbeat, a chill. <laughs> Edwina Buffalo Reyes works in the Tippo office with Marvin. It was overwhelming for her just to be on site. You know, there were certain times where I actually had to walk away from the site and you know, the site's not far from the shore, so, um, you know, you walk away and you're, like, standing in front of Lake Superior and you almost think, like, this is what people 5,000 years ago were looking at. I'm looking at the same thing. I'm seeing the same exact thing that they're seeing. Edwina was in charge of one of the most restorative aspects of the field school at Frog Bay. It was an internship program started in 2019 that brought three tribal high school students out to the site. The interns worked at the dig site and got to learn about what happens in the TIPO office. Being able to witness them being exposed to things that I wasn't exposed to when I was younger um, was really touching. It was almost emotional, you know. Edwina grew up in Redcliffe but has never experienced anything like this. 
I think this project uh, in the summer of 2019, the entire summer was really honestly a highlight of my life <laughs> because um, it was something that I've never I've never done before. I grew up in Redcliffe. Um, I was born in Milwaukee, but I grew up in Redcliffe, and I didn't leave the area until I was maybe 24, 25, maybe a little bit older, 26. Um, so this is my home. This is my community. But never did I imagine, you know, or think about archaeology or, you know, who was here before us. Archaeology has the power to be restorative and healing and indigenous. Here's Heather again. And it's not there yet, but we are trying to kind of grow homegrown Anishinaabe archaeologists so that Redcliffe can become more uh, completely independent of uh, academic programs like this. So we sort of want to put ourselves out of a job long term. Edwina and Marvin's work in the Tipo office is to keep Anishinaabe culture thriving. My take on, you know, history is, um, you know, if you don't know where you come from, um, you might have a hard time getting to where you're going. You know, it's exciting to know that um, my my seven-year-old son will be exposed to to the things that I'm just starting to become exposed to. And that's how he's going to live. That's how he's going to grow up. Through these revitalization efforts, Edwina is breaking cycles of generational trauma for her son and kids like him. Trauma that was always intentional. Trauma that finds healing as far back as 5,000 years. The children in this community, they, you know, they're important and they're special and they, they deserve to be exposed. They deserve to be immersed in culture and language. That's, that's, their, um, that's their right <laughs> as Anishinaabe um, kids, people. Um, they, they deserve that. We all have a job to do today. We all have a job to undo, undo what happened to us as indigenous people. And what I mean by part of their job to do is, if you teach a child to love the land, that child will protect it. You'll protect the land if you teach them. But you gotta teach them, and part of Part of how you love love the land is you gotta understand yourself and love yourself as a native person and understand those teachings that make you Anishinaabe. It ain't just doing the archaeological thing, it's, it's, it's you, you live it. It's a gay when you live it. Be proud who you are because throughout history you have, what are the elements of of uh, being healthy. Well, you gotta have a roof over your head, you gotta, you gotta have food, you gotta be warm. But there's one element in there too, and that's your soul, your spirit, that's important too. You can have all this, but you can still be goddamn depressed and don't know who you are 
or you still can be bullied because you got brown skin, or you still can be, you know, just works on your spirit. So, so what we're saying is, <clears throat> hold your head up and be proud. Be proud who you are. Wisconsin Humanities and Love Wisconsin have teamed up to make six monthly episodes of Human Powered because we believe that sharing stories about people making their communities better help us all imagine what is possible. For every episode, we pull together extras like photos, resources, and background info. For this episode, you can watch a video of the Anishinaabe microwave in action. Visit the Wisconsin Humanities website to check it out. Human Powered is produced by Craig Ely and Jade Isiri Ramos at Field Noise Soundworks, along with Jessica Becker. Story editing by Jen Rubin. Special thanks to Marvin Defoe, Edwina Buffalo-Reyes, Alex Bresloff, Richard Lafernier, and the Tribal Historic Preservation Office and the Department of Education at Redcliffe. Dina Wartzel and Brigetta Waller are executive producers. The show is mixed by Rob Byers, Johnny Vince Evans, and Michael Rayfield of Final Final V2. I'm your host, Jimmy Gutierrez. Visit Wisconsin Humanities at wisconsinhumanities.org and love Wisconsin at lovewi.com for more information about this episode and our work. If you like this episode, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Human Powered wherever you get podcasts. Season two is dropping very soon, and it's all about humanities within the carceral system. In fact, if you come back next week, we're dropping a very special episode on this feed from our second season. To learn more about Human Powered, visit wisconsinhumanities.org. See you there.